In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. For a moment this morning, I want you to sit back and think. Think about that greatest triumph so far in your life. That moment that you felt like you'd finally made it. You'd done it. How did you feel in that moment? See some smiles out there. How did you feel an hour afterwards? How about the next morning? After you slowed down, did you want to go out and party? Did you want to sleep for a week? Sail off to Tahiti? Were you able to do any of that stuff? Did your body ache afterwards? Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Now Ahab is the son of Omri. Omri is a great military leader and king of Israel. Ahab had done a great job and married Jezebel, whose father was the king of Tyre of Phoenicia. It's a great political marriage, but one that led to the king and to Israel turning from God. To try to bring Israel back to him, God sends Elijah the prophet. Elijah kind of peers out of nowhere, goes to the king and says, listen, it's not going to rain again until I say it's going to rain by the word of the Lord. And then Elijah crosses the River Jordan, goes out and hides in the wilderness for a couple of years, drinking from a brook and being miraculously fed. And all that goes well until the brook runs dry. Why? It's not rained in two years. God directs Elijah not to go to Israel, but instead to go to Phoenicia, to Zarephath. Now Zarephath is between Tyre and Sidon. Today that's in Lebanon, right in the same area where the queen is from. And Elijah just doesn't stay by himself. He moves in with the widow and her son. And God provides miraculously for the three of them throughout the continued drought. And in the third year of the drought, God finally tells Elijah to go back to Israel. He said, go back, present yourself to Ahab, and the rains will come. We find out that Ahab had been looking for Elijah. His men had been searching all of Israel, and he made all of his neighbors swear an oath that they weren't hiding him in their kingdom. And when they finally get back together, the king and the prophet have words. The king accuses Elijah of bringing trouble to the land. Elijah retorts it's the king and his family that have brought the trouble on them. Elijah gives one of those quotes that we still like to use part of today. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And then Elijah offers up a test. Me versus all the prophets of Baal. So 450 prophets of Baal of the book of Kings says, gather together and they start offering sacrifices to their gods. And whosoever sacrifice gets consumed first by supernatural fire, that god's the true god. Elijah stands, steps back, gestures at, at the prophets of Baal and lets them go first. And when nothing happens, he starts trash talking them. Hey, maybe your god's too far away. Try a little bit louder. Hey. He's still not answering. Maybe he's on vacation. Really get up there and scream, guys. They start cutting themselves. And Elijah finally goes, listen, is he on the toilet? Where's your God at? Literally, that's what he says. And nothing happens. So finally, he asks those around him to go and get large water containers and douse the sacrifice to God three times with water. And he prays, and God answers. First with fire. And then later that day with rain. 
Well, Ahab goes back and tells Jezebel what happened. Jezebel threatens Elijah. I'm going to do to you what you did to the prophets of Baal, and I'm going to be cursed if I don't. So, what did Elijah do? Did he stand his ground? No, he ran. He ran and hid. Now, people from 3,000 years in the future like to stop here and psychoanalyze what was going through Elijah's mind. Was he burned out? Was he scared? Was he depressed? Don't know. But he was sure acting like he was depressed, isn't he? He wouldn't eat. He kept telling God, listen, let me go and let me die. I, I can't do it anymore, God. It's important to remember that the people in the Bible are simply human beings like us. They're not marble statues of faith. They're not stained glass windows with no feelings. Elijah here shows his faith and his feelings. His body and his mind reacting to all the stress he'd been under. Feeling like he was alone and isolated. And so God sends an angel to feed him and tells him to go to the mountain of the Lord. The angel even brings food. And what does Elijah do? He eats and then does what? Goes back to sleep. So the angel lets him sleep for a while and wakes him again. Eat and drink and go to the mountain of God. And this time he eats and drinks and he goes. And from this point on, there's a little bit of parallelism going in here. Whoever wrote Kings is trying to remind us of Moses and the children of Israel. They, he travels 40 days to get to the mountain of God, just like they traveled 40 days to get there. With the Lord providing for Elijah as he goes, just like he provided manna to the children of Israel. All the way there, every time Elijah speaks, what's he say? God, I'm done. I want to retire. I want to go do something else. And he gets to the mountain of God, and he goes to a cave. Now, it's important to realize here that the Hebrew is really, really weird when it talks about the cave. The cave that Elijah went to. It keeps saying it's the cave. But what cave is that? Commentators will say that, of course, when Moses asked to see God's glory, what happened to him? God says, you can't see my full glory or you'll die. So he put him in the cleft of a rock in a little cave. And he got to see the backside of God. And the text here seems to be indicating that Elijah here gets to that same cave and goes in. And he starts waiting for God's answer. God, can't I just retire? Can't I die? Aren't I done? Then we see what happened to him. A storm comes. Then an earthquake. And finally a supernatural fire. And then finally an unearthly silence. Have you ever been out in the wilderness and everything just gets unearthly quiet? Now, if you're in Florida and that happens, you should look down and look and see if an alligator is nearby. <laughs> if you're in New Mexico and Colorado, you might want to look around and see if there's a bear or a mountain lion or something there. Normally, that kind of unearthly silence is dangerous. But in that silence, God speaks. And he does it in a still, small voice. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah once again lays out his complaint. Listen, God, I've been zealous for you, the God of hosts. Israelites have forsaken their covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your other prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they're seeking my life to take it away. And God tells him, what? Elijah, go to Damascus. Anoint Elisha as the prophet. You're going to anoint a different king. 
The next verse that we did read this morning, God also tells him this. Elisha, you're not on your own. There are more than 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. They're still faithful to me. Elijah, you feel like you're alone, but you're not. And the Bible has Elijah continuing his ministry for some time. As the deer longs for the water brook, so longs my soul for you, O God. It's one of those beautiful statements about the longing for God that we can have. There's a famous worship chorus that starts with this very line. But the rest of that chorus doesn't actually capture what's going on in this verse. And in this passage, the psalmist writes this, after talking about his deep longing for God, Why are you so full of heaviness, O my soul? And why are you so disquieted within me? That's not just a line he puts in there. How many times do we say that this morning? In those two chapters, in those two psalms? Several. Like Elijah, the psalmist knows God, right? He says, I've led people to go and worship on your mountain. I've seen your, the mighty works of your hands. Right now, he has to continue about what he's going through and how he feels. Heavy, upset. Everyone around him goes, okay, where is your God now? The psalmist knows they have to put their trust in God, right? I'll put my trust in God and yet give thanks to him, who is the help of my countenance and my God. But the, psalm, the psalmist also knows that in that moment, he feels alone. And he knows that despite that feeling, God is with him. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Paul here is describing to the Galatians the relationship between the law and Jesus. He's writing to those and trying to explain to the Galatian church, largely Gentiles, that when others who came after him told them that they had to go live out the entirety of the law, all of it, to be a true Christian, Paul's telling them that's not true. The law had its time to keep people safe. It's our guardian, it's our schoolmaster, our disciplinarian, until Christ came. But Paul also wrote, but now that faith has come, you're no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. The good news is this, because Christ came, because he lived among us, through his death and resurrection, we no longer need that guardian. Through faith, we can safely live as the children of God, and we're all one in Christ. Our status in God's eyes is that of his children. Paul's reminding them that when they were baptized, they put on white clothes. White clothes that symbolized the righteousness of Christ. Because we're all one in Christ, nothing outside of us can affect our salvation. We're no longer Jew or Greek. We're no longer English or French. German or Russian. Italian, Irish, Mexican. We're all one in God's eyes. Doesn't matter if we're born as slaves or free, how much money our family has, whether we were born in Philadelphia or whether we were born in Oaks or Phoenixville or any other attribute. We are all one in Christ. And because of that, we're free from sin. We're Abraham's offspring, heirs to every promise of God. In our gospel this morning, we read that they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. Luke is letting everyone know that this morning Jesus is in Gentile territory. He's crossed the Sea of Galilee, and on his way there, they had a little storm. And when they woke Jesus up, what did Jesus do? He spoke to the winds and the waves and calmed them, to the amazement of his disciples. 
And before he finally gets off the boat, there's a man already there to meet him, crying out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. He's naked. He's been hurting himself under the influence of this evil that's been possessing and oppressing him. Jesus cast them out. They went out by the legion because there were so many of them. He cast them into swine. When Jesus found the man, when like Elijah, like the psalmist, like Paul, like the Galatians, like us, he was in his hour of need. And in that time of need, Jesus delivered him just like he delivered us. It says, the man from whom the demons gone begged that he might be with them. He wanted to be a disciple. He wanted to be one of the apostles. He didn't want to leave Jesus' side anymore. He wanted to get back on the boat and cross over the sea. And what did Jesus say to him? Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. It's a very simple command. And that's what I think God asks us to do. To love him and be faithful. Knowing that no matter how we feel, freedom has come and we are not alone. And then to share that love and that freedom with everyone that God puts in our path. Amen.